to Chat is a podcast for health professionals delivering grassroots information and resources to support great quality diabetes care and education of people with diabetes. Hi, I'm Jane Lehman, registered nurse and credentialed diabetes educator. Hi, I'm Kirley Chambers, advanced practice pharmacist and credentialed diabetes educator. Hello, my friend. Hi, how's it going? Somehow we've patched together a system to do our podcast chatsters. I'm off-site and didn't bring the microphone and Kiralee's at her place so we're hoping that this is going to work well. Kiralee, I think it's seat of the pants kind of work. Yeah and again this is what we do. We tend to find ways that just work with everything. I know. We do. I'm very excited about today. What are we going to chat about? We're going to chat about COVID, people with diabetes and complex health conditions and how we can help people out of hospital, particularly now where the health system is very overwhelmed and I would say just becoming battle fatigued and we're just trying to keep people managing at home as best they can and not having to go to hospital because we're just completely overwhelmed as healthcare professionals. And at the moment we're also moving into the flu season and I noticed on the weekend the government here in South Australia announced a two million dollar campaign to get people to have their third dose of COVID vaccination. There was a change in language. Instead of talking about boost, they were now talking about needing to have three immunisations and then four for people with higher risk. Yeah, and for elderly and people in immunisation pharmacists as well. And they'll say, I need my booster shot. And when you actually talk them through it, it's not a booster shot that they're having. And so then you have to decipher, are we actually giving them a half dose, which is the booster shot, or are we giving them a full dose, which is just a shot to actually increase their immune system? Very complicated and it's very complex. And now we've got different types of immunisation systems that we can offer them. It depends on which brand we're offering them. It depends on how much it can give them. So it becomes very complicated and complex. Thank goodness we've got national documentation systems for all of this because without that it would be getting very confusing. Yes and for higher risk individuals they are on their fourth dose which is actually classed as a booster dose and for those people they get a lower dose than the other three doses. And, and you know usually immunosuppressed people know that that's what they need but not always. And that's where the change in language I just found interesting on the weekend because I think people are going to have to recheck the ATAGI recommendations as well. So ATAGI is like the the key organisation providing advice around uh, immunisation. Isn't it really interesting, Jane, that we talk about language all the time? Yes. And yet here we are again talking about language and how important it is that we get people to understand what we're talking about as healthcare professionals versus what they understand as the consumer. Absolutely. And that's why certainly in South Australia, as I say, this change of language, I think, is going to confuse people and there's going to be lots of questions coming up at the pharmacies and general practices around it. Yeah. So anyway, that was just an aside. But 
when we start to look at the flow-on impact of COVID, you and I certainly get to see it pretty significantly at the pointy end of diabetes care with the people that, that we provide services to within the NDIS sphere. Yeah, and not only just that, we certainly do, but I get to see it at the, at the end, particularly working with a lot of clients with type 1 diabetes, because, you know, people with type 1 look after themselves very well, given that they have a chronic health condition that most of the time is okay, is that when they are really unwell, then they really can't look after themselves. So as you know, Jane, I had an on the weekend, and for people that don't know that are listening for the first time, I have multiple autoimmune disorders and I had a really nasty reaction to a vaccination I had, not COVID and not influenza vaccination. I needed to have another vaccination and I had a very nasty reaction that put my temperature through the roof and also gave me severe aches and pains. I was instructed by one of my care team to go straight to the emergency department via ambulance because they needed to rule out COVID. And I must say thank you to the emergency team that arrived on my doorstep it was touch and go as to whether I really needed to go to the emergency department, but it was decided I needed to go to make sure I didn't have COVID because I had all the symptoms of COVID. I had severe headaches, I had joint aches and pains, I had muscle aches and pains. I had a temperature that I'd been running for more than 12 hours and nothing would bring that down. I didn't have the cough and I didn't have the nausea and vomiting, but I had enough of the symptoms of COVID to, to make the decision that I needed to go. That's tricky, isn't it? Because there's a lot of symptoms that are common with with other health issues. But the deciding factor was when you do have COVID, as you would know, Jane, that you need the antiviral yes. and eat them quickly. So that was the deciding factor for me. And at the moment, is the accident and emergency the only place we can get that? There is a new antiviral called Paxlovid available on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. What was that name um, again? Paxlovid, so we might put the... Um, <laughs> Sorry, the it's so funny where we get the new names. Sounds like Pavlova, Paxlovid. <laughs> Sounds a little bit Russian. But we always have to get our tongue around these new I words. Know. I think you did it quite well. Thank you, I've been practising. Paxlovid. <laughs> 1st of May 2022, this was launched. So very new, very new to market. This is for antivirals that are being used to help people fight off COVID. Once in, they have tested positive for COVID. Yeah, infection, once they've tested positive. Positive, So it's yeah. a way to short circuit. And similar to what they do if someone has got shingles. Correct. If you can get it early enough with an antiviral, it will help decrease the seriousness of the condition. And these working in a similar way. Yes. Clinical criteria for PBS, so to get the paid by the government, that's what PBS listing means, because they're very expensive, obviously, is people 65 and older with two additional high-risk factors for developing severe disease. And by just severe disease, they mean um, the COVID will go on to cause significant problems for that person. Under-immunised, maybe? Yeah, or lung disease or asthma. Yeah. So that's what they mean by high risk. People 75 or older with one additional, so 65 or older with two additional, 75 or older with one additional high risk for developing severe disease. 
then there's no age on this one. Moderately to severely immunocompromised people, irrespective of vaccination status. So yeah. you could have had all four of your vaccines for immunocompromised and still, um, so moderately or severely immunocompromised. So that was the kicking factor for me. Because yeah. I'm immunocompromised and have other autoimmune conditions. If it's on a weekend, a you wouldn't be able to get it anywhere except... Except. Well, some of these, some of these, I don't know where the Paxlovid it is because it's brand new and I haven't done my research, to be honest, but let's have a what, look. What's the name of the other one? Uh, just, the other one... Just to be fair. So there's Lag Evero. Lag Evrio. So it's for L-A-G-E-V-R-I-O. Legibrio. Legibrio, thank you. See that? You wouldn't know I'm a pharmacist, really, would you? <laughs> you should. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if that's something you get taught in pharmacy school. No, not how to read. Is how so, to... <laughs> was Pavia assisted on the 1st of March 2022. And to just finish off the clinical criteria, the other... Factor is Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people aged 50 years or older with two additional high risk factors for developing severe disease. So they're yes. the four criteria. Yeah. So Paxlovid, so it should be started as soon as possible after diagnosis of COVID and within five days of developing symptoms. Yeah. So the, the thing with this, in, within the context of what we're talking about, is that if you are in a high risk group, then yeah. you kind of have to go to an acute care service more than likely in order yeah. to access the antivirals. You may well be able to get these from your GP as well. Started as soon as possible. Standard doses for most people is 100 milligrams. And so it's a combination of two things and it's a capsule. Yeah. So, and again, to be fair, let's have a look at the other one. So the other one, so they all should be started as soon as possible and yeah, capsules as well. All right, so we've established that there's different antivirals. We could put the link up. I think that's going to be the easiest is if we put yeah. a link up to the yeah. antivirals so that people can look it up for their own yeah. update. So we've got really stressed acute care services at the moment and especially within accident and emergency. Certainly on the weekend, access to antivirals may well be fueling some of that. But people don't know, and again, Kiralee, this is all about language. They're being yeah. told not to call an ambulance. Yeah. Unless you really, really need it. But one, there's not a lot being done to help people decide if they really, really need it. And yeah. so you were saying that I would imagine the paramedic services are all pivoting their services at yeah. the moment and coming up with ways to get better triage at the site. Yes. You were saying that they have the paramedics coming around in... SUVs so that they can go and quickly do an assessment and suss out if people really need the acute care ambulance response. Yeah, it's interesting because that's the first time that I've ever seen this, this lovely young gentleman turned up. He came out and identified himself and told me that he was out to assess whether there was a need for me to actually go to accident and emergency because obviously they're so under the pump now. He has capacity to speak to an accident 
make the decision as to whether to send someone to accident and emergency, and he yeah. offered to do that. But after having a discussion with me and I offered to get and ring my healthcare team, he made the decision that he didn't feel comfortable to leave me at home by myself, given the fact that my temperature was so high and that I had a number of the symptoms of COVID. And again, the kicking factor that made the decision was that if I did have COVID and I did test positive, that the most important thing for my long-term health was going to be to get the antiviral started quickly. Yeah, that quite intimidating for people as well. If you feel like you're calling an ambulance to get help and then you've got to pass another bar in order to be able to get that help, there's been like a shift in acuity but I don't think people are having it explained. We see this a lot in disability support where I've actually just read an email where a young woman with an intellectual disability, we see that the support workers will quite often call an ambulance when they feel like they're out of their depth. Yes. And because they don't have the health training, they call them at a much lower level. Yes. Even if they've got advice and plans, the diabetes management plans have to be quite explicit. But even then, people panic and start to, you know, flick the switch for the ambulance review. The best thing that we can all be thinking about is how do we start to identify the people we need to have a bigger conversation around even calling an ambulance. We don't want people not call an ambulance, but at primary care level, we can be helping people identify other options in order not to get to that point. Yes, but the really interesting thing is, and I know that it's their job, and I completely understand why they have to tell, is we all know that there's, come the 1st of July, there is going to be so many more people on continuous glucose monitoring and flash monitoring for the management of their diabetes, which is an amazing promise that the government has made type 1 diabetes. Government and opposition, so because yeah, there's sorry, bipartisan... Yeah. Actually, I think people forget that this is an election promise, but because it's got bipartisan support, no matter which party gets in... So it still has to get through parliamentary process. One of the things that I got told when we first called the ambulance, which was quite early in the morning, was I needed to not eat or drink anything. Now, that was about 10.30am. Yeah. By the time the, the all of the decisions I've made, and like you said, Jane, we got through that next hurdle of that next person, I eventually got into hospital at 4.30 in the afternoon. Now, that's a long time not to have anything to eat or drink. I was sick, really, to worry too much about eating. But what is currently not understood is that you need to keep your hydration up to keep that CGM working, the continuous glucose, yeah. of which I wear. And that's what controls all of my mm. insulin pump therapy. And so I took it upon myself. I understand why they're telling not to have anything to eat or drink, but I, I made it myself that I was not going to stop drinking because there was very little chance that I was going to go to have any form of an operation because that's why they tell you. For a procedure, for a procedure. it would be for. People with type 1 and anyone that has diabetes that wears a continuous glucose monitor, I believe should be having a discussion with their endocrinologist about if I need to call an ambulance and if I am told that I need to stop drinking, what is the decision that should be made for my personal circumstances? What do I do about my continuous glucose monitor and my insulin pump? 
And I'm lucky in that my continuous glucose monitor will also tell my pump, your blood glucose level is X, I'm going to drop your basal rate by Y in order to keep your blood glucose level stable. Yeah. So I'm lucky in that way and I understand my diabetes very well and so I had no hesitation, well, I don't need to eat, but there are a lot of people out there that would in order to keep their blood glucose levels stable. Yeah. They're the sort of things that we'd like to have that discussion because there is ranking going on. I was told that even once I got to the hospital, there would be an eight-hour wait. Now, I already have been supposedly not eating or drinking for quite a number of hours and then there was the capacity to be waiting another eight hours in the ambulance bay it certainly was filled beyond capacity when I got there what we're basically saying is that we're in a new paradigm when it comes to supporting people with their sick day management when they have diabetes type 1 or type 2 in most of the plans it has a certain point where we say go to hospital, I think we have to review some of those sick day plans and start to provide people with some more intense education. Now, what's really difficult is to identify the people in theory we should be able to call in for extra information. It's not the kind of thing that you can just post something out. I've actually started to think Maybe we need to, Kiralee, come up with a a checklist that is like an emergency checklist for people to use to keep themselves safe within the current changes. I agree. And people can then use it to talk to their health professional for some more information or the health professionals can fill the information for them if they take it or the health professionals can use it, fill it in and give it to their clients uh, and especially in primary care but also in the GP plus or local health network services. Yes, because you know little little things that you don't think about Jane, like I've always got a bag packed, always, and it sits in my spare room and it's always got things like spare sets for my insulin pump and spare batteries and a toothbrush and a toothpaste because I can guarantee you on the day that this happened I would have not had the brain capacity and I certainly was not well enough to think what would I need to take to hospital the only thing I needed to grab was my medication and some insulin out of the fridge yeah no for me to pack the bag what capacity would the nurses if you admitted be able to your sensor oh absolutely none so so bless the ambulance uh, personnel when they got here, he's pulled out a blood glucose meter and a fingerprint. And a band-aid? Uh, no band-aid. And I said, what are you about to do with that? And he said, need to check your glucose level. And I said, not with that antiquated machine, you're not. And he kind of looked at me and he goes, that's brand new. And I said, mate, I wear a continuous glucose monitor. You are not coming anywhere near me with that finger pricker. And he just started laughing. Oh, may I see it? And I said, sure. And I showed him and he goes, oh, that's amazing technology and I said yeah it's been around for a little while now so doing a tutorial as you go well yes I don't know how I don't think it was up to the quality of the standards that I would normally do given that I was running a temperature of about 39.3 at that stage but you know yeah. it's still pretty good but you, you know, were still on the job like I'm, I'm impressed 
So really people need to get a good idea of what's happening in their ambulance services and how they can start to inform their people who are most at risk of needing to call an ambulance. People with intellectual disability or psychosocial disability or complex health issues would be top of my list. I would go so far as to say packing a bag and having some basic snacks, like even if it's things like little fruit bars and a couple of small packets of biscuits and having them sitting in the bag because, again, what is not top of priority when you hit an emergency department and never will be, but it, it, it will make the stay for someone so much better is having some little snacks. I was not offered anything to eat or drink, mind you. I was getting on the bags of fluid. Um, I was, uh, the, the, my stay lasted over 24 hours. And, and, you know, they were bringing me tablets like Panadol and stuff to try and get my temperature down. And the nurses were in and they would have Panadol and they're like, you don't have any water in here. And I'm like, nah. So I was not offered any food or any drink at all for 24 hours. We need a checklist to how to survive ramping. Yeah. When you have type 1 or type 2 diabetes on insulin. But it's not only... It's I, not I'm only being ramping. actually being serious. No, no, I, no, no, it's what I'm not... I'm not only saying it's not only ramping. When you get into the emergency department, they are in battle for tests. They're doing the basics. When I say basics, I mean they are doing an amazing job and I take my hat off to them because I couldn't do it in any way, shape or form. But they are flat out getting bloods. They are flat out getting urine. They are flat out nursing. So the things like systems in place but also enable to action what they need to if they need to call an ambulance or need to go to hospital. I would say a list of medications is, is so important because you know they're running around trying to find stuff and they, they had medication Jane that I've never been on and I'm like I've never been on that and they said well you must have at some point and I said I am a pharmacist I know what that medication is for that tablet has never passed my lips and again they're looking at me like well, you must have been on it at some stage. It's in your medication street. Isn't and it I'm funny like, how they always believe what's in the notes compared to the person? But we yeah. know how inaccurate the recordings are, especially in discharge letters. Summary, yeah. And so when I looked at my discharge letter, it's got patient eyes ever being on Sure. <laughs> Not okay. system could be wrong. If we've got this whole new paradigm in which to think... I really don't think we're doing it very well at the moment. I had occasion to talk to a RMO at one of our emergency departments 
about a gentleman who had presented a couple of times to emergency. The, the support staff were out of their depth what was being required of them. When I spoke with the, the RMO, it, it was an interesting conversation because his focus was all around, is it acute? That's chronic. No, yeah. can't see them. I understand that, but if you've got support workers looking after someone with a number of complexities, I think the other thing that's influencing it is that they don't want to admit people and give them a higher chance of getting COVID yes. if they've yes. got lots of people within the system. I'm not criticising what this doctor said. I understand it completely. However, you kind of need something in between. And I know that we've set them up for other people. Now there are a number of services that each state and territory is putting in place to try and stop people like this person even needing to front casualty. We had someone who was at risk of homelessness and we were able to get some really good systems in place that prevented them from having to go to casualty over Christmas. Those services didn't used to be there. Often you don't know about them unless you go looking for them. So yeah. if you're working with people with complex needs who are at risk of homelessness or repeat admissions to hospital, usually there's a whole flow of issues that need to be addressed. Find out what your state and territory or rural area have got in place to help prevent people even having to go to casualty. In the primary care sector, we're needing to think about prevention, but also managing more of the acute stuff that doesn't need hospitalisation. But we haven't really had a guide in how to do that. I would say at the moment, a lot of stuff is being done one person at a time by GPs and the nurses in primary care and right. pharmacists. Yeah. Wherever there's direct contact, with people. We've changed our systems too in order to provide the support workers with a lot more emergency information but simple actions of what do you do if this happens or if the person gets COVID what do you do. Yes. So in aged care and disability support services the people who are advising around what to do we need to have new systems starting to be put in place to, to help to manage all of that. Yes. I'm just not hearing people talk about it a lot. No. Well, I think the rules change so often and so regularly, it's hard to up. And I think this, the discussion with primary care is inadequate. Yes. Because no one is kind of thinking about the problem on a systems approach. So they no. have for acute care, but I don't think we're thinking about it enough for primary care. Like one of the best things we've done, Kira Lee, is getting email lists for our clients who live with very complex situations. We've been getting email lists together to connect everybody. Yes. If you're in acute care and you've got someone with complex needs, you can reach out as well and get an email list of the key people. Then communication immediately improves. And once yes. you've got it established, 
you can use that to help prevent the person going in. But it's those simple structures, despite all our technology, they're just not there. No, and often when you phone someone, they're working from home, so you can't get a phone call to the secretary or the support person to get them to ring back. No, and a lot of people don't have messages saying if they're away or they don't work on a particular day. Yes. So that's one thing to be careful of with, with emails is that don't assume people are working full time and don't assume that they're working where they would normally work. Yes, because often they might not be there on the day and then they don't review their emails that have come in on that day, ever. Yeah, and if they're sick as well or in isolation, they've also got to catch up on all their emails. So don't be afraid to send another one so that it's up near the top. Yeah. We all need to be thinking in a whole new mindset. And it's really this continuum between acute and chronic is a whole new ball game. Yeah. Even us doing this podcast, Kiralee, I think we've come up <laughs> with two new checklists. I know. One is just for people to keep themselves safe within the current changes. But I think we do need to add to that uh, something for surviving between <laughs> when you call a paramedic and when you get to hospital and see a health professional. Because yep. it's the basics that they can't provide at the moment as far as food and drinks. But for someone with diabetes, that is an essential. Correct. And so I think, you know, even some little fruit boxes for hypos, these things, to have a pre-packed bag with all these things already in it is so, is so very important. It, it will really get you out of trouble. Yeah, and have people who know what you need when you're sick and get people to start their sick day management as soon as they can. Yes. And if they suspect they have COVID, act sooner rather than later through the primary care channels or the testing stations now for you it, it actually wasn't COVID great relief correct however until diagnosed you've got to treat it like it that's and absolutely so that must be putting extra pressure well it does and that's the, the one place I didn't want to go was to an already strained acute service but yeah. I was also told, no, that's exactly where you need to go, by two of my healthcare team. So I felt like I had no choice but to go there. Yeah. Because they kept stressing to me, the one place you need to go to is to make sure that you don't have COVID. And the really interesting thing was that they have the capacity, they applied senior leader of the team to have a fast COVID test done that comes back within an hour. That's, that's very helpful. Yeah. And they did an influenza test as well, and they said they're both negative. We really need people to making sure they're up to date with their COVID immunisations, but also getting their influenza ones. Again, I heard stats on the weekend here in SA, the numbers are way down. I can't believe it. Like, I've already had mine. Have you had yours? Uh, for the which one, sorry? The... Yeah, I know which one. The flu booster. jab. Yeah, my yeah my flu jab. Yeah, I had it done at, at the same time they had my booster. Someone actually said on the weekend there's a bit of immunisation fatigue. Yeah. I feel like I, saying people, yeah. like, it it <laughs> you can't get fatigued by this. Yeah. Get sick of lockdown or something else, but 
don't get sick of the stuff that's going to keep you alive and healthy. Yeah. Especially as health professionals, please make sure that you've all had your flu injection and I'm sure all your COVID stuff is up to date. But look after you before you look after them so that you're nice and safe as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good chat. Wow, we explored this acute chronic intersect. We've looked at the antivirals, which hopefully are going to short circuit some of the time people end up with COVID. We've explored the ambulance services and making sure that people get more of an update around what's happening in their services and to remember the main thing that they're using as their criteria at the moment is, is it acute? Is it acute and do they need to be in hospital for this? Yeah. And if not, computer says no. Yeah. And how can we all gear people up not to need to call an ambulance. Are there some ways that we can create systems that help people when they need that? As I say, watch out for people with intellectual disability, psychosocial disability, any kind of disability, and type 1 or type 2 diabetes. And let's just, you know, keep vigilant because I know with everything opening up as well, it starts to feel like we're moving back to normal, but we really aren't. No. Uh, normal is not something we're going to see ever again because no matter what happens, things have changed. This is a different type of normal. This is our new normal, I think. Absolutely, Kiralee. If we just accept that and go with it, we're going to have a much better health system in the long run when we do get this virus under control. Because at the moment, we've been able to do stuff we've never been able to do before. Yeah. And people aren't going to let go of that because it's all going to become... And that's the definition of person-centred, really. Yeah. I would have to say. Yeah. So we need to be person-centred around our advice for people if they become more acute. What we define as acute has changed. Yeah. And that's the stuff we all need to be thinking about. Uh, the acute is much more acute. It's, it's much more acute than what it used to be. And you know what? It's also probably what we should have all been thinking about a long time ago. Now we've just been forced into it. Yeah. So that's the trouble. If you don't act early, something happens to push it and that's when we're not prepared for... Uh, for that end of things as well. Yeah. Chatsters, that's it for P2 Diabetes Chat. Always good to have a good chat. It is. So, Chatsters, search P2 Diabetes Chat on Wooshka, iTunes Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and subscribe, leave a review or rate. Don't forget to check out our previous episodes and listen on your work commute when doing physical activity over the weekend when cleaning out your house or office or while doing your paperwork so we'll be back when do you think jane no idea kiralee no, you <laughs> we can schedule something where we can be talking at the same time about, about uh, something new yes who knows what All we'll right. talk about next time so now it's goodbye from me kiralee chambers And me, Jane Lehman. Stay safe and chat soon. Chat soon. Bye. Bye.